Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello, you beautiful people, and welcome to the first ever episode of Staying Alive with me, Jesse Smith, a podcast about staying afloat in the ever-changing ocean that is the creative arts industry. I am so nervous and excited to bring you this first ever episode of Staying Alive. I love podcasts and it's something I've been thinking about doing for a long time. And the coronavirus pandemic was just the kick up the bum I needed to get me started. Over the years, I've been lucky enough to work with some incredible artists, musicians and producers, as well as having friends in other areas of the creative arts, each with their own inspirational stories of how they forged a career in their specific discipline, how they've battled through the tough times, and most specifically, I'm interested in how they continue to do that once they get there. Over the next few weeks and months, I've got an incredible lineup of artists waiting to share their stories with you of how they managed to stay alive by being a creative. So, without further ado, my first guest is a world-renowned guitar god. Having worked with the likes of Chris Cornell, Courtney Love and Don Henley from the Eagles to name a few, as well as having international notoriety from his hugely successful YouTube channel, he's become one of the world's most loved guitar players. He also happens to be one of the hardest working and nicest people I've ever had the privilege of working with. Speaking to me from lockdown in his studio in Los Angeles, my first ever guest on the pod is Pete Thorne. I thought, yeah, you were the per- perfect person to, to start out with, mate. So thank you so much for doing it. Absolutely. Happy to. <laughs> Happy to do it. Happy to F- do firstly, it. Firstly, how, how are you getting on, man? How's everything in lockdown for you? Is your day massively different, I guess, with doing all the videos and YouTube stuff? Can you get on with that? Yeah, it's really, uh, to be honest, other than the fact that I'm cooking, which is like a whole new experience. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think I've eaten every meal out for the last 30 years. But... I've learned how to like make good scrambled eggs and it's like, it's wow, it's this whole new world. Actually, and that aspect of it, I'm kind of enjoying, uh, if you can enjoy anything, but making food at home is like, wow, because uh, I'm an idiot when it comes to that. And, and it's like, well, I actually can do this. So, it, Do you guys have like being... Deliveroo over there? Uh, do we have which, sorry? Like, like a, a Deliveroo? Delivery service? De- yeah. So we have this thing called Deliveroo. Did you come across it when you were over here on tour? No, but we've got Postmates and similar things that are, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Restaurants, yeah. So, so man, and my I friends think... all laugh at me because I have an account and basically I get free, I get free delivery because I, I pay like seven pounds a month or something. So like okay. sometimes I'll be working at home in my studio and, I, and I'll just like, I'll deliver a uh, flat white and it will just come to my door. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not, see, you're just totally used to this stuff. So it's like, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's terrible for my carbon footprint, but it, it's good for our convenience, you know? Yeah. So we have that. And I know that you guys have been a little bit more closed down than we, like we've had uh pickup or uh, sorry, takeout and pickup delivery at most restaurants mm. has been going the whole time. So it's like, you can call a place and 
put an order in, then stop by and pick it up, generally yeah. speaking. And that's been most restaurants here or, or get the delivery thing. But, um, and, and between that and cooking, uh, at home and stuff, you know, I, I, I mean, I've got the studio and this is not in my home. It's a separate space. So I, I go back and forth between this space and my home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but that's really not that much different than what I, uh, you know, kind of like us musicians, like we hole up in these studios and we're kind of used to that, like isolating and, sure. right. And, you know, and, and random employment and all that kind of stuff. I feel like it's given us a bit of a, uh, maybe a, a somewhat of a head start or, or a jump on things because we, we like that adaptability thing, we, we've had to learn how to do that because it's like sometimes it's like, you know, if you know what you're doing for the next two months as a musician, it's like, whoa, job security. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. And, and we've lived like that for years and years and years. So, so anyway, so I think in some ways, but having said that, of course, um, it's really, really hard on a lot of musicians because if you make your living mainly doing sessions or mainly on the road, that's stopped. So, or in mm-hmm. clubs, that's stopped. So, yeah, it's like the, the, the being somehow, uh, you know, by purely by accident in this YouTube world and stuff has given me still the ability to get some work done. And actually, because people are kind of clamoring for stuff to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, things to watch and content. And so it's like, okay, let's make some videos, you know? Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. If you had to, if you had shows canceled on you during this period. Live gigs? Yeah. You know, oh, so you know what's funny is, of course, we just did the classic rock, uh, classic rock show 2020 tour. Yeah. Finished up. And be- previous to that, I'd done two t- clinic tours of uh, Europe and, and of uh, Asia. Uh, so I'd been on the road for like six months, kind of just like, so like at the end of the, the that last gig in Liverpool, I was like, man, I do not want to see my suitcase for a minute. Yeah, I yeah. Home. Yeah, I want to go home, come in this room and like do some work in the studio. And boy, did I ever get my wish. It's like, be yeah, careful what yeah. you wish for. Because I, so, so really I didn't have much on the books for a while. I had a lot of backlog as far as like, uh, you know, I make a lot of videos for different companies for pr- products like guitar pedals and stuff. So it's like, uh, I had a lot of that work on the, on the books and ready to dive into that. And it's just like, whoa, then this happened. And, you know, so, so not a lot. I mean, I had a one in town gig that was coming up and that got canceled. You know, it was like two days before it was like, everything really started locking down. I was like, Oh, I guess that's not going to happen. And then of course everything just since then. So, you know, yeah, I had planned on kind of staying home at least until I, I did have a, okay. There was a tour that was mentioned that it seemed like a actually a really cool tour um with a big artist that's based in uh, a pop artist from China actually and he was doing a tour outside of China going to all like London Paris Toronto um you know uh, Tokyo like all big cities outside and he's he's quite a he's quite a well-known uh like I mean the the gig was at the O2 in London he's like a big star wow. like in in the you know Chinese pop community so it's like it's mm. one of the biggest and that so I was really kind of actually looking forward to that and we were just talking about the details of it uh and then it was like okay that's not gonna happen it's that was one of the first so that that there was that that uh, like a two-week run with him and I was kind of looking forward to starting that you know that might have been a cool thing like going down looking into the future down the road maybe hopefully working more with him and stuff like that but so we'll see if that ever comes around again. Yeah, I hope so, yeah. man. Well, let's uh-huh. let's touch upon what you mentioned um, about making videos and stuff, because obviously we'll, we'll hopefully get onto how you started and everything. But 
you know, you mentioned um, about your YouTube videos and stuff, and I kind of look at you as a as a pioneer of that scene, really. I mean, you currently sit on, was it 188,000 subscribers, and you've had something like 36 million views on YouTube. So it's a real kind of success story. And um, it's allowed you to obviously have this freedom in times like this to be able to just do that and focus on that. And I suppose have, have the luxury of picking and choosing gigs. So firstly, why did you start doing that in the first place? And when did you realize that it could sort of be a, a career or, or, you know, an online? Oh, yeah. You know, you could call me the accidental pioneer because I don't think... <laughs> Do you know I what I call anybody... you? The, the king of the guitar nerds, that's what I call you. Uh, that's fine. That's, <laughs> just don't call me boring, hopefully. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, it's funny. YouTube, I guess, 2005. I watched the first YouTube video the other day and I, I didn't... I did, I, there was a news report about it saying, for, uh, you know, first YouTube video hits a certain number of views or whatever. And right. it was made by one of the founders of YouTube. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys, he, and he only uploaded one video. So on his channel was just that one video. And it was him <laughs> at the zoo. And it was like with that elephants, I think. And um, it was really funny because the video's got like 90 billion views or something ridiculous. <laughs> you know, tons right. of, and it's just this really silly video where he's like, here I am, and I'm. Uh, uh, here's the elephants, and I'm at the zoo. <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, we think back to 2005, and here's this video. I, so I started my channel in 2006 because I remember thinking, oh, well, this is kind of cool. Like, you can make videos and then put them up this, as a musician, I guess, lessons and, you know, thinking about the possibilities, right? Mm. So the first kind of stuff that I put up were some lessons and also some uh, just sort of – I just got in a little home studio together – so I had a simple recording interface and a Mac, and um, and I thought, well, I can crank up the guitar and record some tones and stuff, and that'll be interesting because I'm a I'm a nerd, like you said, you know, when it comes to that stuff. So I started putting out a few of those, and those videos, like, there wasn't very many people on YouTube then, so it's like they got some, you know a few views, and um, and probably 2000. Okay, so 2007, I put up a video where I recorded an amplifier. I just hooked up with the the folks at Sir Guitars and Amps, which is my my guitar and amp company. Yeah. Um, and they had a new amp coming out, and they gave me a nice price on this amp, like an artist deal. And I thought, mm-hmm. what can I do to show my appreciation for that? Because it was a really cool little 18 watt head, you know. And I thought I'll record it because I'd made a couple of videos already. I thought I'll just record it and I'll talk a little bit about it and show the features and stuff like that. And I put that video out. And they, they did an initial production run of like 200 of those amps, built up 200. And a guy from the company hit me up a couple months later after I'd put this little video out. And he said, hey, uh, you know, we want to thank you for making that video that you put up on YouTube. We've sold the whole run of 200 amps, which for a little company, you know, they've grown bigger now. But, you know, that was for that was their first amplifier with the surname on it that they'd put mm. out. And so they were really just getting into you know, for that foray. So, um, so anyway, uh, they, they told me like we've sold them all and we've heard a lot from, uh, the dealers and stuff that customers are talking about this video you put out and it was really helpful, uh, for them to make a decision on whether or not they liked the tone for them. And it just seemed to be, and I thought, huh, that's cool. Like, okay, Mm -hmm. maybe there's something to this. Um, the next year it's 2008, and I, I did a uh, a lesson on how to play Eruption. Yeah, uh, by I've Van seen Halen. It. <laughs> yeah, I've and seen you play like, that a few times now, actually. Yeah, maybe thirty one <laughs> times. <just be> exactly. <laughs> thirty one times plus rehearsal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for those that don't know, we did that in the 
we did Eruption into Jump by Van Halen in the classic rock show set, and it was always really fun. Nerve-wracking and fun because you got to do a good job on it for me. You know? <laughs> yeah, but, it uh, was in a yeah. kind of a section of the show that was pretty non-stop for you. Huh? I was like Bat Out of Hell into, uh, into Eruption Jump and then yeah. Thunderstruck, right? Yeah, boom, 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 <laughs> all that. But really fun too and really good yeah. for my playing. And um, then free Freebird after that, I think. Yeah, the whole or, solo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, bit of a race for the fingers. <laughs> so we'll, fun. We'll get we'll get onto that anyway. <laughs> but, but yeah, so I made this lesson, and I realized quickly, like after I started doing it, like oh my god, this is going to be difficult because videos could only be fifteen minutes long back then, uh, and I thought there's a lot of notes in this solo, so and yeah. I was just explaining <laughs> every single note, you know. So it became a five part series. So it's funny mm-hmm. to look at the five videos now on YouTube because the the views go down with each successive video you know, in <laughs> yeah. succession. People like ah, oh, forget this. I don't want to that work would that this. would that would be me, man. After I get halfway through the first video, I'd be like, "Fuck this, man." <laughs> <laughs> but I yeah. but I put that out and um and it started to get pretty good views and uh I sort of forgot about it and I was playing with Chris Cornell at the time, so I went out. We had a tour coming up, so I went on the road. It was about eight months later or something, and I was out on the road with him. And somebody came up to me on the street in Portugal, and uh, I was walking down the street in Lisbon, and uh, like pre pre show, as I remember, it was like, it's like the morning of the gig, going for a walk, and this guy comes up to me, and he pokes me in the chest, you know, with his like finger, eye, and he goes, "Hey, you taught me how to play Eruption," <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I was like. Awesome blown away by that like because i was halfway around the world from where i lived and that had never happened where um somebody uh in a in a you know far away place knew me for something that wasn't like playing with chris cornell or playing with somebody else Mm. you know i was a sideman to you know i'd had some cool gigs and stuff like that and a little bit of press and things for doing those gigs but i didn't really have i didn't have no uh, like any solo records out or anything like that at the time um and just the YouTube thing. And so to be recognized by somebody on the street for something that I just made in my apartment uh, with the limited gear that I have and just an idea, that blew my mind and a light bulb went off. And I, that was when I really realized that, oh, wow, there's something to this. Like, I don't need, there's no middleman. There's no record company. There's no somebody telling you, like, it's not good enough or, uh, oh, you need to tweak this or do that better or this better. Because it's really like, Poor video quality and no light. I mean, I literally filmed it on the internal camera on an iMac, like I'm, you know, like like I'm talking to you on now via Skype. Sure. You know? um, that's how I filmed it. I didn't have a better video camera. And back then, those cameras weren't very good. So yeah. it doesn't look good, but the information's good in it. And, I, um, you know, I think I explained it well. I broke it down in a slow, easy to understand manner. So people responded to it. And I just thought, okay, there's really something to this. So that was when the light bulb first went off. Um, mm. And then I started doing more and more of the gear videos for companies and and putting some more lessons up and stuff just randomly. And uh, by about, I would say 2010 or 2011, it was pretty apparent. Like this was actually starting to become a source of income mm. and the channel was getting subscribers. It's been a long, slow build. I'm not like a... You know, I know folks that have had channels for two, three years that have a million five subscribers, you know. I've yeah. got a couple hundred thousand on the verge of now. And it's been a long, slow build, but it's great. It's been a, a – uh, and, and this is the one thing that I would say is that my channel is fairly specific towards guitar nerdy people. If you want to learn to play guitar or you're interested in guitar gear, and that was a total accident. Like I geared it that way. 
uh, it's what I was interested in. Mm. Had I um, done it again, I would maybe think about exactly what I was doing because a little more because I've got friends, uh, folks like Leo uh, from Frog Leap Studios, who has this amazing channel where he makes like these great videos that are like sort of like metal covers of pop songs or sure, country yeah. songs, you know, and they're really entertaining videos. And he's just a talented guy. He plays everything. He's a great mixer. He sings, he can do it all, and he's really funny, and he makes great videos. So he puts it all into this package. But he's a bona fide, like, independent music star on YouTube. He's one of those guys. I think he's got 2.5 or more million subscribers. Uh, and, a, and, a, and a great career just doing YouTube. Now, he, he appeals, uh, you know, from little kids all the way to grandparents. doesn't matter who you are because his videos are funny and fun. And you don't have to be, like, a guitar nerd to necessarily be into what he's doing. So I always tell people, sure. like... If you want to do YouTube, come up with a great idea and try and make it as broad as you can. Uh, like, make your base as broad as you can. You know, like you, you know, you're for instance, you're doing some videos, you know, on uh, singing technique. That's pretty broad. Sure. Uh, you know, there's all styles of music. Anybody could watch your videos. Uh, that's in that's into singing and be pretty. You know, even mine is more like rock guitar. That's kind of like centered on you know. Uh, so it's it's cool because. You know, if you if you can kind of uh, broaden the base as much as possible, that's something I always recommend. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it, it was yeah. it was super inspiring because we had these conversations on the tour bus and stuff. And what really kind of hit home with me was when you said, you know, you've you've got you've got a lot to offer people out there. You know, just you know, having done my, you know, ho- however many years it's fifteen years of being a being singing in rock bands. You know, sure. there's simp- this, you know, and there's simple stuff like people just don't know when they they might be, you know, they might be 10 years old starting out and they don't know that you need to plug the XLR in, into the speaker to to connect the microphone. You know, it's it's yeah. the small, the small things. And and obviously with me, it's kind of more, you know, sort of focusing on doing my covers and doing some technique videos. But, um, you know, like you say, there's billions of people out there that are looking for information and, and you know you just have to make it appeal to those sort of people but what, what always gets me about you as well Pete is is uh is your work ethic and it's it's something that's also super inspiring because we'd be on the tour bus after the show and you'd be editing together videos that you'd made that day or in the morning and you'd be you'd be doing YouTube live on the bu- on the bus you know and, it, <laughs> and it's uh it's super cool man but you know I just obviously it's the YouTube thing must be hard work as well. It's not as simple as just, like you say, just maybe a, like it was at first, just sticking a camera up and filming it. It's, you know, it's, it's it takes a lot of work and effort and I guess the tech behind it and the editing and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, you do have to learn a little bit about the, you know, the world of, you know, video editing and, and, and that kind of thing, but it's really pretty easy these days. And it's amazing. Like, a, you know, what a Mac comes with, like, like I say, a Mac had an internal camera and an iMovie and that's mm. how I got started. And some of the videos I did on that iMac with the internal camera and iMovie, which just came with the thing for free. Those videos have like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of views now on YouTube. So I did, you know, one for how to play Dear Prudence by the Beatles. I did another one for how mm. to play Paranoid Android. Um, you know, those videos are like three, four hundred thousand, five hundred thousand views or something like that, as along with the eruption mm. videos. So it doesn't matter about um you've probably got the stuff you need. I mean, on an iPhone you can actually edit videos these days and people do and make, you know, great stuff. So with 
a little bit of getting into the tech world and figuring it out, you've probably got everything you need. And it's really like, I sort of only know how to use the stuff just good enough to do what I do. <laughs> like yeah. Final Cut Pro, I watched, you know, a little course for like, that's what I use for video editing now. And I watched like a, you know, I probably watched a two hours of instruction total on Final Cut Pro. It's like, okay, sure. I know how to do this and this. Got it. Good enough. I can make my videos now. And I should really probably take a course. But, um, but anyway, it, 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 yeah, work ethic. I mean, you know, to me, it's like fun. It's really fun to get into. Um, so it's not like, I mean, I really enjoy it kind of in a way. I, I put on mm. the headphones and it's kind of, it's just being creative in another way. Um, yeah, well, that was going like to be my next question. Stuff. You know, you, you, I, you know, do you enjoy doing that stuff? You know, because obviously that, that that must help. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty fun. I mean, it's like, um, and you get that feeling of satisfaction when you watch it, and you go, "Yeah, this is cool." I think I, you know, and then you know, mm. you just can throw it up there in the world, like, and it's out like two minutes later. You know, you upload it to YouTube, boom, there it is. And then people yeah. either like it or they don't. But it's pretty fun. Like recently, I did this video. Uh, and it's once again it's such a you know super guitar geeky nerdy thing, but um, one of the things about the the shutdown right now is a lot of people have gotten into doing videos. So Steve Vai, who was like a hero of mine growing up, um, I was able to interview uh, via Skype call actually, mm. and um, capture that video and interview him about this amplifier I have of his, which is sitting right here, which he recorded a lot of records with, like from the wow. late in the late eighties and. Uh, and toured with and stuff, you know, Daily Roth and White Snake and all these bands. This road, this was one of the amps that was out there with him during those times. So I did a whole video on this amp and mm. how he got it and making these records in the late 80s that he would have used this on and stuff. And just, I mean, it was a lot of work. I worked for like a week and a half on this video. Um, mm. Interviewed my other friend Dave Friedman about it. Uh, you know, because this amp amplifier is a Marshall that's been modified by a guy that was a kind of a legendary dude in the San Fernando Valley. It used to modify. He was like the LA amp, one of the gurus, you know. Awesome. So, the, so, so the amp's got some history, and it's like a little piece of rock history. So I made yeah. a whole video about it, it, and it was a lot of work. I mean, if you look at the Final Cut Pro at the edit, all the you know the edits yeah. in there and the <laughs> chops up and the audio and doing everything, I was like, God, this was a lot of work. But I put it out, and it got like. 40,000 views or something in one day. And it's at 188 now, I think. And it's just so rewarding. Uh, it feels great. You know, you make sense. Cause I'm so nerdy, but it's just nerd stuff, you know, but people, <laughs> people get what a nerd I am. And if you're a nerd too, and this is, I guess this is the thing. If you're, if you're really into something and passionate about it and you really care, you're going to have find your people out there. And, Man, and, pa passion, passion's the word, isn't it? You know, it's it's, yeah. about, it's about being passionate. There's a there's another podcaster that I love, um, a guy called Scroobius Pip. He has this podcast called Distraction Pieces. And mm -hmm. he, he said something along the lines of, uh, it might have been him quoting someone else, actually, but along the lines of, it would kind of be, uh, it would be stupid to believe that there's not somebody out there that would like your stuff. You know, mm. if you're putting stuff out there, like it's kind of the backwards way of thinking about it. But, you know, it's like, it's like, you know what, if you like it, there's got to be some people out there somewhere that like it, you know? And uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's funny. There's this, there's this musician that, in that, that I came across on Instagram and, um, and he's into other things too. And he's so like geeky about, I won't name names, you know, but he's so nerdy <laughs> and geeky about the things that he's into that I find him fascinating because yeah. I'm not necessarily into the, you know, I'm talking about like other stuff besides music, like, you know, yeah. like, you know, um, can't, I can't even remember now and watching the videos, but it's things like, you know, uh, 
action figures and things like stuff like that. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? And, and like, oh, I've got this one from this show and this one from, and he's into all this stuff. And it's just like, and you watch him, he's so into it that it's, you can't not find it endearing, you know? It's mm. like, and so if you're really into whatever you're into, uh, <laughs> it's one of the things I love about Japan, traveling there and working, because the people mm. there, whatever you're into, if it's food, if it's fashion, if it's music, they do not screw around. They go into it 300%. So they're so yeah. passionate about cars or whatever they're into, you know, rockabilly culture or like whatever that, and and there's all these like, um, you know, sort of uh, super passionate little groups in, of, uh, you know, people that are fans of things in Japan sure. that, they're, that they're really passionate about. I'll, I'll never forget going to a, a um, uh, it was the Harajuku actually train station, like where the, where the, where the, where the subway and the train stop is there right by Harajuku where all the famous sort of shopping and all that is. And, um, and there was this group of people sitting there on the ground in the train station, and they were they had a boombox. This is the first time I was in Japan, ninety five, I think. Mm-hmm. And they were sitting around in a in a like ten, twelve people sitting there, and they had books of photographs and um and this boombox, and they're listening to music, and they got t shirts on, and it's all like this artist, like some musical artist that they were super into, and. And I asked my friend that that knew a lot more about Japan. It was you know he was you know a friend that I was there with. Uh, what is what are, the, are these people doing? Like I'd never seen anything like that. Like you know, oh they're just fans of this guy and they get together here and they meet like every Saturday or whatever what you know and they this is like this is what right. they do they get together and they meet and they just listen to his music and kind of like worshiping this this music artist you know and it was like the Beatles or something like that yeah, kind of yeah. passion. You know, so I love that about Japan. But anyway, I digress a little bit. But the whole point is, whatever you're into, if you're really passionate about it and you make a, some great content and put it out there, um, you're going to find your people. And they're going to be all over the world because you can hit them now with YouTube. And they're going to be in, you know, Mumbai and they're going to be in Thailand and they're going to be in Detroit and they're going to be all – and you'll, you get this – no matter how geeky it is, you know. And that's my world with guitar pedals and my thing is I got – I've, I've – I've got my people that like what I do. So, sure. um, and I always tell people in, cause I do a clinic on this. This is kind of like the big takeaway from my, uh, it's, it's, it's a, a, a clinic where I, I, uh, basically, you know, I go uh, all last year was going around to these music stores and recording a song in the clinic. I would take, I kind of base it around my gear that I use my Sur sure. amplifier and guitar and a couple of specific things. And, but I bring a little recording interface and stuff. And I just request when I get there that there's a little PA set up and stuff. And I sort of simulate my home studio in the clinic and I actually record the song in the clinic. So the bass and drums are already done, but I talk a little bit about how I program the drums and stuff and about how I cut the bass. And then I track all the guitars in the clinic, do a little rough mix, and then spit it out, you know, basically in a, into a mix. And I'm so, so that's what I do. Like I showed you guys my process right now. And then I just say, so like, this is why all you guys came to see me at the clinic. Um, you know, these little things that I do with very minimal equipment, you can see what I'm doing. And, and, uh, and I say, there's no reason why you can't do this, you know, be it, you know, what in your own style of music or whatever you want to do. And make a YouTube video and then put it out and you might find yourself halfway around the world in Thailand or whatever, giving a clinic on how you do what you do, you know, because that's what's happened is it's just brought, it's brought me, I don't know, this level of like, I guess, notoriety or whatever for just doing something that I'm really passionate about sitting in my home studio. And I tell people like, don't limit this to, for instance, cooking. That's a great one. Like if you're a good cook, 
don't think that like I'm an idiot. I need lessons. <laughs> There's guys like me that need to know. So if you're a good cook, even just at basics, if you think like wow, there's no great videos on how to uh, make, you know, whatever, how to pan fry fish or whatever, something sure. simple, you know, like, like that's a great idea for, you know, YouTube channels is great, simple cooking channels. Or if you're really into whatever it is you're into, don't limit it. Like if you've got your nerdy, geeky thing that you're super passionate about, you can probably, you know, uh, find, find your people out there on YouTube. And, and, and then of course, you know, you asked me about, um, making a living doing this stuff that comes kind of it's weird it just sort of happens like uh i don't know how else to describe it it's like there's different ways to to monetize these things mm. um uh but it you, you quickly sort of start to figure them out if things are going well and if you're getting views on videos or whatever it is that you're doing you know you those things just sort of start to come to you sure you just kind of lean that, into that i guess i, I guess yeah. the thing with you as well is that you always you always use original music. You create little songs for your videos and stuff. So you're not using copyrighted materials. So then That's true. you get to retain the rights from that. And also, um, I remember uh, you telling me that uh, it's kind of funny that, you know, as, as a musician, people, people enjoy having gear. It's a thing, you know, especially guitarists. They like getting new pedals and amps and stuff and yeah. new guitars. You know, for you, toys. you know, for you, you get sent that stuff. That's great. But it's kind of a double-edged sword because you get sent that new thing and, if you've got to do a video on it, that's two days work, whatever. So yes, yeah. you get paid and yes, you get the gear, but you look at it sat there in the box. You think, Oh, that's two and a half days editing or whatever, you know? Yeah. You look, if, if they start piling up the boxes and you realize mm. like, okay, that's two days of life. That's two days of my life. That's, I better get on it, you know, sure. and, and kind of, uh, and Has there been anything it. but it's that a quality, you've... it's a quality problem. That's for sure. You know, yeah. I wouldn't want it any other way. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, are you kidding? It's like, I get to like go to work and just play with toys. This yeah. is the thing <laughs> yeah. with my YouTube channel. One thing I will say that's really been fun about it is I love nothing more than just sitting and writing and coming up with music and it's yeah. like painting to me. It's like throwing paint at the wall and seeing what's cool, you know? And so my whole thing I always say is like, I'm, uh, yes, it's a pedal demo, but I, I, I plug in the piece of guitar equipment, I get the sound out of it, and then I see what comes out that inspires me to write a riff or something, and then I just start programming drums and I go from there. And really all I'm doing is writing music. Sure. So, so I don't, and then I just turn the, I happen to turn the camera on when I'm ready to get a take and, and film it. And so, but the whole process, I'm not thinking about making the best. That's why sometimes my lighting sucks or why, like, it's, it's really all about writing a good piece of music that shows off the audio, like, so sure. people can hear what the gear does. And I like, people to feel like a bit of a fly on the wall not like it's a commercial like a full video production i don't even really worry about that stuff i just kind of turn the camera on and as long as the lights are pretty good and stuff i'll just i turn the camera on forget they're on and then i just track and come up with the parts and then mm -hmm. i edit it together into the video you know um and it's it's really kind of so, so anyway my point being that i'm really having a good time like doing this stuff it doesn't yeah. feel i'm working but it's it doesn't feel like work it's what i would like to be doing anyway so you know if you know, find the thing you love and then do that and you'll never work a day in your life sort of thing is absolutely and well really let, let's uh let's move on then and talk about um the classic rock show if we can because obviously as yeah. we were sort of saying you know youtube is kind of your bread and butter i suppose now it's kind of your your day job but you kind of don't have to go out and do gigs i suppose unless you unless you want to so why was the classic rock show an attractive gig and how did it come about well it seemed like a lot of fun to get out and just play all that great music mm. um you know, okay, so I always say with gigs that, 
you got the music, the money, and the hang. And the hang. With any, yeah. with any road gig. <laughs> the holy so, trinity. The holy trinity <laughs> of like whether or not you should be doing a gig. So if the music's good, if you've got any two of those things, you've got a good gig. If you've got Absolutely. all three, it's a great gig, but only one is not enough. So if the money's great, but the music sucks and you don't like the people, you're going to be mm. miserable, you know? Mm. If the if you know if the music's great but you're starving because you're not making any dough and the people are jerks, that's ah, gonna suck. But yeah. if the people if the people are great and the music's great but it doesn't pay very well, you're still gonna have a great time, you know. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> so so if you can get paid and go on the road and make music and play some great songs and have fun, and we sure had fun, you know. There's no doubt it's a great group of people. It's super easy going. I mean, like, absolutely so easy going. It's like right, just a good time playing fun. It's like a celebration of great music. So, sure. And that's what I hoped it would be, and indeed it was. It turned out to be really fun. Um, you know, you're right. I don't, I, I don't really have to go anymore, but I want to. I still mm. want to go play because um, uh, that's kind of part of my YouTube persona, actually. Is is and it's my real persona. But I mean, I'm, I feel like to some degree, I'm not. I didn't start out just doing YouTube. I, I've been touring since the, and doing records and stuff since the nineties. Of course. So YouTube, yeah. YouTube came later. So I You're like to keep deal. that. <laughs> yeah. And it feeds into it. You know, like you make the YouTube videos and you do, if you, if I just sit here in this one room and make it, that gets pretty stagnant. But if I go out on the road and I make my like vlogs while, I, while we're traveling around, it's like, okay, mm. today we're in Newcastle and let's check out this town. And then here's soundcheck. And we got this, that's part of my YouTube thing. I feel like, so it's good to get out there and, and play mm. still. I don't so. know if you felt like this, but for, for me, the, the, one of the reasons I love doing the Classic Rock show is, is that because we're doing this, all these, you know, it's essentially a cover band. That's what it is. But, you know, yeah, you, yeah. there's, you know, there's a lot of amazing talent in the band. You know, you've got like Henry and, yeah, you know, oh and, God, and, yeah. Wayne, and Wayne on the bass and these, these incredible musicians. But it kind of doesn't really matter because whoever you're covering, you, you, we're never going to be Led Zeppelin or The Who or ACDC. Like, and I say that on stage most nights. Um, so it kind of, it, it, it removes the ego from the band a little bit, which I like, yeah. you know, cause you, you can't, totally. you can't stand up there and, and think you're the bee's knees when, when you're singing a, a Robert Plant song, because you're not as cool as Robert Plant and you never will be, you know, and that's well, kind of what but you'll be as cool as you. Exactly. And that's kind of, that's kind of why I like it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're you, you know? And that's yeah. what I love about it. And it's, yeah. it's funny because if people ever criticize, like, you know, you'll read some of the YouTube comments or something. It's like, they yeah. do realize that we're just having fun playing covers, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Like, exactly. We don't think that we're, you know, uh, it, we're just so having funny. a great time celebrating this music and it's just yeah. supposed to be a hell of a lot of fun. And it is, but it's like, yeah. you know, so I always try and re remind myself of that and hope that other people remind themselves of that this is the music we all grew up with and we're just having some fun playing it so that's exactly. all we're not, we're not taking ourselves too seriously i don't think it's a yeah. great production i mean the lighting and the it's done on a really high level you know sound and the lighting and it, mm. i thought you hated the lighting because you can never see anything i hate the cans <laughs> in the front of the stage that are pointed right at my face <laughs> i've only got one good eye really and then you shine a good light in it like it's just blinding me and i play a wrong note and then i get pissed <laughs> off you know <laughs> That was made me a laugh. Of the, a couple of the shows, I just kicked them out of the way. The fucking lights, man. It's like, yeah. oh, Pete's off again. <laughs> yeah, Pete probably wasn't very happy with me. So how did it all start out, man? When did you pick up the, your guitar in the first place? How old were you when you first started playing? Uh, 10, I think. 
Fantastic. About 10. I actually started on violin a year or so before because I was just like into like fiddle music for it. I think I heard like Charlie Daniels band or something. Mm. Devil came down from Georgia looking for a soul to steal, you know. That? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so I saw somebody playing fiddle, I assume, probably on because that's what it, I don't I don't actually remember that. But I remember liking the Charlie Daniels band and I remember the sound of fiddle and Irish jigs and stuff. That was it's pre me discovering rock music, really. Mm. Uh so I played I played violin for a little bit and I liked that, but then pretty much discovered the Who not too long after that, and then mm. was like, oh, all bets yeah. are off now. I got to get one of these electric guitars. And a friend of mine taught me how to play. I can't explain on the guitar by the Who. Yeah, and uh, and I was a really big Beatles fan at that point too, because the same friend had turned me on to. He was playing all kinds of cool music for me. He's a couple of years older than me. Friend in the neighborhood that kind of took me under his wing, taught me all about music, showed me all these mm. great bands, and here you got to listen to this, listen to that, you know. And I just got obsessed with guitar. So that would be, yeah, it was probably like 80, 81, something like that. Mm. And, and you're from Ed- Edmonton in Canada, right? Is that, that's is that right. where you grew up? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what What's it like out there? How, what was it like growing up there? Is it is mm. it like, as you imagine, like covered in snow and all that stuff? Cer- certainly like? for about six months of the year. Yeah, it's a cold place, but it's a pretty big city. Uh, really kind of a, like... It's, you know, places change, you know, but back then I remember it being pretty sort of like working class, kind of blue collar, you know, um, mm. lots of, uh, of um, you know, farming going on around there and uh, lots of the big industry where I'm from was kind of oil and gas wells, you know, so it was mm. like, like, it's kind of like the Texas of Canada, really, Alberta. Mm. Uh, so, you know. Um, so not particularly creative then. No, I wouldn't. No. Although I, I managed to find those people. That was the neat thing was I, uh, I found some cool instructors and some people that were like good guitar. There was a cool rock scene going on in Edmonton. There was a mm. cool, like, like a, like a punk rock scene. There was these bands like SNFU and I think like DOA and these, these kind of punk bands that came from, uh, from, from Canada, from Western Canada. So there was that. And then there was the whole, like, you know, obviously like the, the big ones that you'd think of like Rush and, you know, mm. bands like bands like that. So that was going on, and there was a lot of rock clubs in Edmonton mm. and places to go out and see. But it, it was mostly covers. You'd go see bands there, play covers, and that was something that it's funny because now coming full circle, the classic rock show, and also mm. just kind of my whole career as a sideman. I my first experience is seeing a lot of bands in clubs when I was thirteen, fourteen, fifteen years old, and sneaking in because I was underage was bands playing covers on a really high level. Mm. Um, you know, really knowing the notes and then knowing the phrasing and learning the stuff and getting the right tones and all and that always stuck with me. Um, and it sort of served me well once I started getting sideman gigs and, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd grown up with a real like appreciation for bands that played other people's music really well, <laughs> mm, <laughs> you know, absolutely. And, yeah. And then thank God I also got a, do- a good healthy dose of like, you know, uh, writing and stuff like that as well and doing my own thing. So, mm. but I, it was both things. Cause I feel like the cover band thing really in the whole Western Canadian cover band circuit, which was a big, what, what, what would happen back then is a band would roll into Edmonton, into one of these rock clubs, which is generally connected to like a motor hotel. So imagine like right. a big rock, rock club connected to a, a hotel mm-hmm. and, um, and they'd set up on a Sunday. There'd be no gig on Sunday. They'd set up on Sunday and then Monday through Saturday, would be, you know, the nights that the band would play. So they'd be the same band there all week. And they would carry usually lights and PA and have like a full like production, like pretty good, you know, uh, like usually two or three man crew. 
Mm. And they would be like a Who cover band. Or there was an Alice Cooper guy that like did a whole Alice Cooper tribute. And he had the snake and the costumes. Like he literally had a boa constrictor that he carried on. The, <laughs> yeah. And I remember that dude traveled around in like, a, I think, a limousine or something. That was so wow. wacky. But he, he considered, he was like a rock star. Like he'd show up. Yeah. Him, but he's, he's an Alice <laughs> Cooper. You know, it was it was funny, man. But uh, like a tribute. But so there was a lot of bands like that. And I, I kind of grew up watching those bands, you know playing this music but on a pretty high level and then a lot of concerts coming through too so mm. I, I saw everybody in the 80s i mean i would wait out you know in line for tickets all night long to get you know a, a fifth row floor seat or something to go see iron maiden or you know i saw you know genesis on the mama tour and you know i saw journey on the escape tour and i saw all these bands you know man i, I don't Halen. think you can put a price yeah. on that stuff man i mean i i always feel super lucky growing up in in Reading, my it sounds kind of similar to you know Edmonton in a way, in that it was quite industrial and there mm. wasn't. I mean, there was a there was a sort of healthy. There were, you know, there's probably five or six venues in Reading that were kind of pretty good for rock, but but mm. we had Reading Festival, you know. So of course, from, yeah, from, from maybe, the yeah. from the age of sort of sixteen, seventeen, yeah. I was going there and I, I saw you know dozens and dozens and dozens of bands at that festival, you know, from so Guns cool. and Roses to Pulp to Muse to. Um, Foo Fighters, you know, you name it, they all came through there over the years. Yeah. And, um, you know, as a young musician, A, it was obviously super inspiring, but, you know, you learn so much by watching those guys on, on stage, don't you? You know, you learn about stagecraft and being a performer and, you know, yeah. and, um, you know, and obviously, obviously now you can chuck it into YouTube and, and see Led Zeppelin and all the Beatles or whatever, but there's nothing like being there and seeing like, you know, the intensity of these people, you know, and, that's well, it was amazing, them. right? Because it's like when you're a kid, I don't know about, so you're, you're younger than I am, but it's like we didn't have, I mean, literally, I don't, I don't even think when I first started going to shows that there was MTV yet. It might have mm. been because that was 81 or 82 or something, wasn't it? So it was like the first couple shows I would have seen, I mean, I remember seeing Rod Stewart and like the Doobie Brothers on what was supposed to be their final tour, which is funny because wow. they're still a band now out playing. <laughs> so when I think about how long ago that was, I mean, good on yeah. them. They're still out doing it. But, um, you know, and, and so anyway, you'd, you'd go see these people and you're like, in a town like Edmonton, it was like, oh my God, I can't believe they're here in my town. And you'd never seen, you know, like maybe you'd seen them on TV or in a magazine, but that was it. And so the excitement of, of that was so cool. Um, and uh, anyways, I just remember going to the show and the anticipation, you know, before the gig and the, you know, even just walking in through the parking lot at the beginning, it was exciting with the people selling the bootleg t-shirts and stuff. And then you get inside and everybody's buying the new shirt at the merch stand. And then you go sit down and it's like, they're playing cool tunes. It's, it was a party, you know, and then the lights would go down and, you know, the whole place would start to smell like weed, you know, and, and, and everyone, <laughs> the crowd would go crazy and then you can see them walking as shadows out on the stage like oh my god they're really here yeah yeah <laughs> you know and it was so exciting it was just like intoxicating you know so um so much fun but and and i have to say like my sister was really into uh, british hard rock and heavy metal and she used to get kerrang magazine from like the mm -hmm. local record store in edmonton like a local kind of really cool indie kind of record store and so i knew all about reading and the reading festival and mm -hmm. donnington and these it seems so exotic all these english rock yeah. festivals you know <laughs> yeah castle donnington and uh, yeah so i loved that you know and oh, man, um, Can canada's exotic to us trust me <laughs> 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 so so yeah. you, you ended up you went to um music school in la is that right so you moved down 
Yeah, when I was 19, I moved to LA and, and went to GIT, to MI. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how how did you find studying? Because I've had this conversation with lots of my friends and some of them some of them loved music school and some of them kind of hated it. So where do you sit on that spectrum? Well, MI was such a... Um, I mean, it really was a vocational music school in so many ways. It wasn't like a, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it was, yeah. I, I don't know how to describe it. It was pretty easy to pass the curriculum and get through school. It wasn't right. like going to, I don't think it's anything like going to Berkeley or something, at least not at the time. That, that was yeah. my, you know, but what I did learn, so like I can't play jazz, for instance, and I went yeah. to MI and graduated, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. But, but I learned a lot in MI about, and, and I'm not saying that there aren't players that come out, at, there, there is that come out of MI uh, that are great jazz players. What I learned is it's all there for you. They just don't, you're not going to be spoon fed it and just come out a great player on the other end. You have to, t- you have to tackle it and you could, you can kind of go to MI and take it for what it is. I mean, there was a great library. There was all these great kind of elective things you could do. Um, and one of the, one of the, th- some of the stuff I got out of MI that was the most valuable was like real world stuff. Mm. Like they used to do these live performance workshops where it would kind of, it would kind of simulate a jam in a club where, you know, all the, you'd, you'd go into a room, there'd be drums and bass and guitar set up and a, a PA and they'd call your name and you'd get up on stage and they would have told you the song you were going to play that week. It'd be Led Zeppelin. Like, like I, I remember doing uh, Black Dog once by Zeppelin. Mm. Not so an easy jam on... song either, really. Dude, not an easy <laughs> jam song. And, yeah. I learned the, and I learned the hard way, getting yeah. up and playing with it. You know how the you know how in the recording the hi-hat actually keeps going, but they just muted it? And mm. you're the... Right? So, you know, he was keeping time through there. Well, the drummer's kind of got to keep time through the vocal breaks or your screw. Right. Well, the, yeah. our, the drummer didn't do that, so we got <laughs> up and just destroyed it. I mean, it was awful. It was a train wreck. And I always remember the the guy who was kind of running the live performance workshop that day, a great bass player named Steve Bailey. He walked up. I mean, I don't think, think we got halfway through the tune. He got up and grabbed the vocal mic and said, "Well, the Led Zeppelin police are waiting outside to take you guys away." <laughs> <laughs> but he would talk about what we did wrong, and you would learn. You know, mm. it was like it, it was very similar to getting up in a club and. You know, so I learned a lot of that kind of stuff at MI. It was like real world, okay, like next time I get up and do Black Dog, I'm going to know what to do. I'm not going to, you know, fall mm-hmm. on my face again. Um, so so it was a lot of great info like that, real world kind of stuff. I remember playing with like in the in the big live, there's a big live performance hall there, uh, the P100 room. And I remember playing with like Tim Bogert, who was a bass player with Beck Bogert and Apsey, you know, and mm. it, it, like, you know, here I am on stage with this guy and I'm like 19 and mm. he's holding up the chord changes, you know, two chord, you know, five chord, you know, cause I didn't know the song we were playing and I'm just watching it. I'm like, I know how to do this. I get this. And that guy mm. used to play with Jeff Beck in the sixties mm. and I'm up on stage with him and he's showing me and I'm getting it. <laughs> yeah. And it was like so thrilling, you know? So, um, so, and he also taught me uh, a great thing that I'll relate. Like uh, uh, it was stuff like this. These are the things that I take away from MI. Uh, he did a singing class. He was a pretty good singer, you know, real solid rock singer. And I was kind of shy and timid always with singing. And I remember going in there, you know, sitting there and he'd go, okay. Like, and he, maybe he showed us some simple like singing exercise and I probably did it and sucked or whatever. And he'd go, okay, okay, let's start from the beginning. He'd go, okay, your mom is across the parking lot. You're at the mall and you mm. want to get her attention, right? Yeah. Okay. Call your mom. She's all the way across the parking lot. How do you get her attention? Mm. Uh, and I was like, I don't know. What do you mean? Like, and he's like, just call your mother across the parking lot. How do you do it? And I went like, mom, uh, mom, you know, like that. <laughs> like, yeah. You know? And he goes, 
She's across the parking lot. Mom! He goes, yeah. that's how you sing. You know? Exactly. <laughs> and I was like, oh. <laughs> you know? Man, okay. I have to do that with every, almost every student I ever vocal coach. Really? Because, like, yeah, you know, you know what? The... I, I guess, uh, again, we digress, but I, a lot of singing stuff is unlearning bad habits that we've picked up as we've become adults, you know? Because, mm. like, you know, the, there's a classic thing of, like, you know, you, you never hear a baby lose its voice. You know, it can scream all day long and it's fine. You know, you never hear croaky ah. babies. And uh, it's because they're just, they're, they're screaming the right way, you know? As we get older, we're, we're told to shut up and be quiet a lot. And we kind of, all our inhibitions, uh, come into play and, and suddenly mm. we're all constricted and tight. We don't want to be loud or we don't want to, you know, we're embarrassed to be loud and out there, you know, and mm. a lot, a lot of it for people, especially at the beginning of learning singing is, is that is learning exactly what you're just saying, learning to let go and just, you know, just do what you would naturally do. If somebody was about to walk out into the street, you go, Hey, you know, <laughs> I like it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. there's a car coming, you know, you wouldn't go, Hey, <laughs> right. Right. With some conviction, your natural instincts. What yeah. To do. Yeah. yeah Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. cool. So yeah. I, I don't want to go through like blow by blow, you know, and then you did this and then you did this, but I want to touch upon something you, you mentioned earlier that I thought was interesting. Cause you said you've, You've obviously worked as a sideman for a lot of a lot of big names and big acts, and we'll, we will obviously talk about a few of them. But you've also, you know, been an artist and done your own stuff, been in bands, done right, you know, your own writing and stuff. What would you say the the main differences are between those two? So being an artist and and working for an artist, and what are the pros and cons of both of those? Hmm. Pros and cons. Um, well. I feel like uh, things have changed a little bit because when I started uh, growing up in this business, it was kind of like, if you really wanted to get anywhere, I mean, this is a little bit of an excuse because I'm realizing I'm contradicting things I've realized recently about folks like Steve Vai that put on an independent record when he, in like 1982 and was very successful with it. Mm. But when I always thought, okay, if, you, if you're going to be in your own band, do your own thing, you kind of need a record deal and you need a team of people and a lawyer and a manager. And that's the way to kind of make it work, you know? Like I say, I've since been, I've since, uh, there's examples that I've got in my own life where it's like, wow, that really wasn't the case. But that's always what I thought, you know, it was sure. like, if, you know, if you're going to be an artist, you've got to kind of go and have this whole team of people. And it's, it's kind of a, it can be a harder path or a more difficult path because you got to, you know, you're writing music, producing it and like figuring out a cool band name, you know, how do we do merch? How do we, how do you do this? How do you do that? To be honest, like the sidemen thing. All you kind of really need to do is like learn your instrument really well and practice, you know, get like a real high level of competency and then have some good people skills, mm. you know? So for me, it was like the, in the beginning, it was like, I really wanted to, I got my first thing that got me into being a professional musician was, you know, writing, recording like 50 tunes with a band, finally getting a record deal, getting an advance and going that route. But yeah. It faltered after about a year. It was like the record didn't really do anything. And, and then it was like, okay, on to the next. What do I do now? And mm. I started going back and forth between, you know, my own music projects where I was a part of it and writing and stuff and then getting into the sideman world. And it, there's only so um, long, I think, that you can go uh, get in the van, starve and drive around the country or whatever, you know, um, mm. trying to break a band, you know, that you're, you know what I mean? Like you get into your 30s and maybe into your 40s and it gets to the point where it's like, if you know, it's, it's a little like watching that movie about Anvil. You ever see that mm -hmm. the heavy metal band, the Anvil no, movie? If nobody's seen it, it, it's amazing. It's like this great, you know, 
rockumentary about their whole, like they, they will not give up. And they're right. like, these dudes, dudes are getting into their fifties and stuff. And they're like, it's going to happen, you know? And they, they were always at the cusp of like heavy metal, like kind of in the eighties, sort of like right. breaking and, it, you know, they've had a lot of ups and downs. And it's a really, uh, it's kind of heartbreaking and heartwarming story all at the same time, but it's great. But I feel like a lot of people have a limited amount of patience for that stuff. Like they will hit the point where it's like, you know, I need some more security. I want to get married. I want to have a kid. Like, so there's a lot of, a lot of my friends that have drifted into the kind of working either, you know, studios or sideman kind of stuff doing that. Mm. It's a way that you can go on tour, play great music, um, have a career playing music. If, if you rise to the top, the cream of the crop of that, and you know, it's, it's a lot easier than breaking a band. Having said all that, Obviously, if you're in Muse or something, you're like, mm-hmm. this is this is where it's at, man. Mm. We're writing our own music. We're doing our we're living by our own rules, and you know, the funny thing is, though, I think that there's this misconception, like, oh, it's the greatest thing in the world to be in your own band and write your own songs and stuff. But the, the, usually in bands, there's some sort of power structure, and a lot of this is when you you know we hear about the headbutting of in bands and stuff and the Mm -hmm. problems and the bands will split up and there'll be lawsuits and all this kind of stuff. Many many times in a band, it it can get into that stuff. Maybe where there's like difficulty with the, the, you know, just personnel problems or whatever. I write all the songs. Why are you taking half the songwriting or that kind of thing? You know, where it's like these kinds of arguments when you're a side man, it's kind of cut and dry. It's like, here's the deal. The gig pays this much. Here's the mm-hmm. length of time that it lasts for. We'll revisit after that if we're going to do more touring or whatever. You know what I mean? It's like a little bit more like you're an independent contractor doing a job. It's like being a roofer or a plumber or being, except to help, mm. help a lot more fun maybe in many ways. But, you know, not to well, take that, away from... The, the difference being, but, like, you're totally right. You know, you are, obviously, I've done similar gigs, you know, like that where I've been in bands and, you know, it's it's this tour and it's this amount of money and, you know, and it's there's very much that hierarchy like you're talking about. and. But yeah. then, but then the plumbers and the the builders they they're not backstage drinking champagne with Paul McCartney <laughs> in the next dressing room, and that's where it gets that's where it gets difficult because I'm sure you know you've had so many amazing experiences and continue to do so in your career where you know you you must have been like you know shit you know I'm on a private jet and I'm here and I'm doing this and yeah, yeah. um I well, read that's in your when yeah. It's, I was just going to say I read on your website today you you played the biggest ever concert staged in Japan for example. Yeah. Um, was that, oh God. Dude, I'm going to yeah. probably pronounce his name wrong. I'm really sorry, but it's, it's, is it Sayoshi Nagabuchi? Is that how you That's pronounce it? That's pretty close. Sayoshi Nagabuchi. Yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah, yeah something like a hundred thousand people, right? I mean, what was that like? Yeah. The state, <laughs> so he, he's a really amazing artist. And this is one of the fun things about doing sideman gigs is that, um, there's a whole world out there and there's artists in, in, uh, you know, Italy and in France and in Japan that, that maybe you're not even aware of if you're from the UK or if you're from the States or Canada that are, you know, massive and have been big stars for maybe 20, 30, 40 years. Mm. And, uh, going to do those gigs is something that I got into around 2014 playing with, with, some folks other than us based artists, you know? Mm. Um, and so Tioshi's one of these people that, you know, he, he has had, you know, hits since like the seventies, you know, uh, songs that he can't, he can't, he's a fascinating guy. He like kind of like almost like a folk artist, um, traveling around with an acoustic guitar, playing shows all by himself all over Japan in like the early seventies, mm. early mid seventies. And then he kind of went way more rock and developed kind of almost like a hard rock sound, but always had this kind of that other side to him too. And, and, you know, he became like, he's basically like a, one of the, you know, I would say top three or four, you know, 
uh, rock artists in Japan. Mm. Uh, go, going, you know, he's, uh, people will say he's like this, the Bruce Springsteen of Japan or something like wow. that kind of. Um, so, and and going there and working with him is just a fascinating experience because all of a sudden, you, you know, now you're working for a Japanese company, essentially. And so you get that cultural perspective of it's different than going there and playing with an American band and yeah. tour, touring with an American crew and where you, you, you know, you get a little taste of going there, but it's not the same as when you're working for an organization that's based there. Mm. You know, when it, some of the, when I first got over there, there was three of us from the States, two of the guys now all. Um, John Button and Lauren Gold tour with The Who as well, keys and bass. So they play with The Who. So um, mainly because of that, really, long story short, at, at some points I was the only American guy over, over there playing in the band. Mm. Uh, so uh, because of that, sometimes I'd be the only American guy in the room with, you know, 30 or 40 Japanese folks, you know. And that is an amazing experience, working mm. in a band like where nobody's – speaking English all of a sudden and, and, you know, you just sink or swim kind of, but music's yeah. a universal language, you know, so you make it work and you learn it. God, I loved it. I mean, cause their work ethic is so crazy over there and awesome, mm. uh, sometimes over the top, but it's like really a great experience to, 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 to throw yourself into. Um, and he, uh, it, with the, with the big show you mentioned, he, that was like a career capping concert where he wanted to do something that was so over the top. He'd done mm. a, a, sh a show in the south of Japan. He's from a place called Kagoshima, and there's a great big volcano down there. That's an active volcano that still spits out ash almost every day in the morning, and it's unbelievable. Wow. But um, he did a show there at the at the volcano uh, for seventy thousand people. Like, and that was ten or fifteen years ago, or something now, something like that. I can't remember exactly, but. Uh, it might've been 2007 or something. Um, and he wanted to top that. He's like, what can I do? That's cause he's always trying to kind of go <laughs> one more. So he thought Fuji, you know, let's do a show at Fuji, uh, for, as you, you do know, and let's get a hundred thousand people. Yeah. So he mm -hmm. literally went as far as securing a site that was like, it was like the Tokyo, uh, Fuji's pretty far from Tokyo, but it was called the Tokyo, uh, uh, university farm or something like that. So it was like mm -hmm. a, a great big open, beautiful site where it was just like in the middle of this big open space, but all surrounded by mountains and then with Fuji in the background. And he mm -hmm. had to go and literally like relocate this site for these people. Like, this is where I want to do it. Well, this is a, f a farm, sir. We can't do that here. Yeah. <laughs> We've got animals here. And he yeah. had to figure out how to make that work, like literally safely relocate, you know, the farm essentially mm. for the time being so that he could use this. So he paid for all that. And, you know, he's, got this, he's, he's this guy that has these grand dreams of doing things and actually makes it happen. Wow. On such a, so the stage that they built is, you know, it was 200 meters wide. Uh, wow. The biggest stage that they'd ever built in Japan with this huge structure. It was kind of built, built to mirror the mountain uh, with these great big video screens and stuff. It was unbelievable. Um, so that experience, I went there. I mean, it was literally a year building up to that show of, of, of prep. Uh, and then we, we got there two or three months before the show and we did 52 days of rehearsal for one, for one show. <laughs> right. So we played all he night. He works That's hard as well. <laughs> yeah. That's the other thing we haven't mentioned is it was, yeah, oh, he's a hard worker. But but the thing that we didn't didn't mention, it was an all-night concert. So we played from 9.30 or 9.45 p.m. until about 6 in the morning with wow. little, break, little breaks. So it was a lot of songs. So we I think we tackled about 75 tunes or something like that and whittled it down to whatever would fit in four sets, you know, of music. Wow. So experiences like that, you're not going to get that, like, 
you know, if you're in a band, I remember seeing the guy in the, the guys in the Foo Fighters while I was there getting ready to rehearse for that. They were in the lobby and I know some of those guys. So I saw, I remember yeah. seeing Taylor and, uh, and Pat in the lobby of, of my hotel that I was staying in, in Rapungi. Um, they were in town for Summer Sonic, I think doing a you know, big festival in Japan. And I was talking to Taylor actually for a minute. And I remember saying like, yeah, so trying to explain this situation to him, you know, mm. saying, yeah, I love it because of this and that. And I get to be in it. And he's, he was looking at me like, it was like, that is so alien. Like, you know, yeah. they tour around with a big, there's probably 50 or 75 or 100, however many people tour with the Foo Fighters, you know. Mm. And it's like a very self-contained kind of, you know, their crew, a bunch of American guys, they're all together. They stay in the, you know, they were staying at the, you know, Grand Hyatt Rapungi. And it's awesome because they... You know, they, they're on a grand scale. They're the Foo Fighters, one of the biggest rock bands in the world. But it's a different experience than flying to Japan and playing with a Japanese artist that almost sings all in Japanese, you know, of and, and and doing this completely different. So it's it's like the, the, the different worlds. And I kind of love that. I would love, don't get me wrong, I'd love to be in the Foo Fighters, but I love the experience of going to get to play with some of these folks too and getting some of the, you know, like, let's go see what this is going to be like, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and that's been fascinating for me every time you have to be adaptable and, and open to new experiences. And the more, it's not for everybody, mm. you know, you know, well, I'm really, I'm really glad we got to uh, have that chat actually, because, you know, that's one of the things I love about podcasting actually, is that you get to talk mm. about these things that maybe aren't uh, so easy to explain in a 30 second clip, you know, and it's, it's, mm. that's pretty cool, man. I do want to, yeah. I do want to mention Chris Cornell as well. Cause he's obviously one of my heroes and, and, um, you know, so, I mean, what was he like to work for? How did you, how, firstly, how did you get the gig? Was was it an audition? How did you, how did you end up working with him? Well, it was an audition. I'd heard that he was possibly going to be going out on the road and had a new record coming out and that he was, you know, and so I'd, I'd heard kind of through the grapevine that it was maybe going to happen. I was like, oh man, that's a big one. But I just kind of put it yeah. in the back of my mind and I waited, you know, I wasn't really actively, you know, you don't want to think about these things too much, mm. you know, uh, hope too much, you know that it's going to happen. The, then all of a sudden, you know, a month or two goes by and I got an email one night. I was working with Courtney Love in the studio actually. And it was about 1230 at night. And um, email said, if you want to audition for Chris Cornell, be at such and such an address tomorrow at noon. And here's the five songs, right. inclu- including two that I'd never heard because they were new songs off his new record that hadn't been released yet. Mm. So you download the MP3s, you know, and, um, and I was like, that's in 11 and a half hours. I got yeah. I'm still in, I'm still working right now. I, really? Okay. Yeah. So I, I split, got home probably about 1am and I just set up my guitar amp and rig and started, you know, making some presets for, you know, I did the whammy preset for like a stone and the tremolo and did the, you know, it was spoon man, like a stone Cochise and two songs. Like, so, uh, a couple audio life songs, a sound garden song and, and two of his solo songs. So I got, a few tunes probably sort of learned that night, went to sleep for three hours, set my alarm, got up, kept working for another three hours at, you know, I got up at seven thirty or something, worked till ten thirty, and then it was time to go, you know, pretty much mm. had to break down my gear. And so I drove over there and I got there and in the parking lot was, you know, a who's who of all the cool guitar players in LA. And I was like, Oh, I should probably just turn around and go home. <laughs> That's what right. I thought. You know, you get that like, Oh, that guy's here and that guy's here. God <laughs> so I don't even want to get out of the car, you know. Cause like, they, what, they were I... they were thinking the same thing, bro, when they saw you walking in. <laughs> well, I think we all, you know, like have the. But 
um, the interesting thing was, I think everybody was in the same boat. Like not everybody had had the, you know, it was a real quickly organized audition mm -hmm. and it was for everybody, bass, drums, everything. So it was a full band. So I went in and played and I got a call back to go back the next day. Was, so, it, was he there? Um, was he, was he there he was. watching? Did he, he sing with in. you or did he just yep. watch you guys? First day he sang. Yeah. So it's pretty first cool, time. man. It was really cool. I remember mm. I was kind of stage right sort of from him. And I remember playing Cochise and playing like a stone and, um, you know, and going, wow. And playing Spoon Man with him. It was mm. like, you know, the very first day, I was like, oh, this is amazing. And, what, and was, so, it, was he always just amazing? Like, did, did he ever have vocal issues and stuff? I know I'm moving forward a bit, but I'm just so interested as a singer because I just, yeah. he's right he's right up there for me, probably in the top five rock vocalists of all time. Like how, did, yeah. was he always just on it? He had vocal issues like anybody, man. Like, mm. you know, if he was a little sick or feeling under the weather. I mean, he had to cancel a couple of shows once, I remember. I remember in yeah. particular, like in Arizona, maybe it was like, was it Arizona or San Antonio or something? I remember like a show like, oh, it's not going to happen tonight, you know, but he'd mm. always try, man. He yeah. really like, he wasn't like a, you know, he, he could be relatively sick and still go out and do it. He wouldn't, you know, mm. he had to be really ill to not do it. But yeah, yeah, had, yeah. Occasionally, you know, he, you know, all that crazy music, he'd sort of, wasn't easy to sing. So in, no, in a way, I suppose absolutely. he's, you know, as a young man, he probably painted himself into a corner a little bit with some of the tunes, you know, like a lot yeah. of people do, right? Like, you know, sing real high when, but. Man, um, that's, that's, that's always been my issue. Cause I get, you know, now people know I can do ACDC and whatever. I always get those gigs. You know, yeah. I, 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 I never <laughs> right. get like a, I never get you phone do. calls going, Hey Jesse, you want to do this Bee Gees tribute? Like <laughs> it just doesn't <laughs> yeah. happen. So. <laughs> I but, know. Yeah. Occupational hazard. Anyway, sorry, man. Continue. Well, so I I I got a call back and I went back the next day and I played that day and then I didn't hear anything for a few days. I got a third call back and then I went down that third day. And um and the one thing I always say is when it, it had gotten whittled down to where it was like I think this is going to happen. Like I think I'm mm. going to get this gig, but I knew he was looking at a few different guitar players and the other guitar player that was because he wanted two in the band. So there was mm. another guy named Yogi who um, ended up getting the gig as well as me. But I remember calling Yogi the night before uh, the third, you know, audition mm. and saying, hey, man, do you want to go over all the parts on the phone? Like, why don't we, let's work together on this and split up all these parts and talk it through so we can go in there organized mm. and then we'll kind of have each other's back, like teamwork, you know, not be yeah. like, because guitar players can be kind of, you know, like, and he's like, yeah, man, it's cool. And so we went through and split it all up on the, on the phone all Great. the parts. And so when we played the songs, because by that point we were into the third audition and he'd added a couple tunes. I think we were up to about nine songs. It was like mm. a fair amount. Of, it was like almost like a set, you know? And uh, I was like, the more organized we can be, it'll just make it sound better and we'll go in there with confidence. And so, you know, we we played a few tunes and it was like he'd, he'd you know, play rhythm and I'd step up and play the solo because we'd talked about that. And then in the next tune, I'd lay back and he'd step up and play the solo. And it was like very like, and, and I remember Chris, you know, very organizing Chris saying like, um, it's like these guys have already rehearsed together. You know? <laughs> and he said that and I was like, yes, you know? Yes. Said, and, and that was the day we got the gig. We got offered the gig about 5 p.m. that day, right after that. And then, um, and then it was like, so that was magic. And I was so happy. And then, uh, and then I remember going home and getting an email from the manager, working on, you know, business a little bit, like talking about salary and stuff, but then like also like, okay, what's going to happen is we're going to do five days a week and then go on tour. The tour starts in three weeks and we're going to send you three songs a day uh, to learn. And uh, so you'll rehearse from like 10 or 11, whatever it was in the morning until like six. 
Mm-hmm. And then you go home, you go home and you'll get three new songs in your email that night, learn those, then come back the next day at 10 or 11 and we start again. Great. And so every night in the, my email, it'd be hunger strike and, you know, uh, doesn't remind me and like some, you know, a uh, rusty cage and show up, mm. you know, and you're like, oh my God, we get to play this song tomorrow with that, that guy. Yeah, <laughs> you know? man. And it was wow. magic. Yeah. And then we did, so it was like three weeks of that, like going to school. By the time uh, we hit the road, I remember we went to Vegas was the first show. We played with the Army of Anyone, which was uh which was uh the the singer from the band Filter. Um and mm. he had joined he had joined with the guys from uh STP, uh the DeLeo brothers and Ray Luzier on drums, and they had this band called Army of Anyone. Really cool record they made actually. But mm. I remember we kinda of opened for them on Fremont Street in Vegas. Great big like outside gig. And I was like, this is the shit, man. This is awesome. Yeah. I'm playing with Chris Cornell with all, and it just kind of went from there. Uh, we 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 hit the road after that. And I was basically on the road the rest of the year from April through December, and we went to Europe twice, and went to South America, and just you know around the states a couple of times, and it was unbelievable. And you know, mm-hmm. I re- so that was 2007, and I remember, like you said, oh yeah, like you find yourself in all these situations all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. I remember, I mean, that that was April, and by June, I remember playing Hyde Park. Uh, that, that Hard Rock Calling, mm. uh, and, and Aerosmith was the headliner. We were direct support for Aerosmith. Yeah, and you know, I remember it was my birthday, June twenty fourth, two thousand seven. You can find video of it on YouTube of that gig, and uh, and I remember Chris saying like, "Hey, it's." I was tuning my guitar. I'm playing in front of sixty thousand people, you know, in Hyde Park, yeah. tuning my guitar. And I remember Chris saying, "Hey, it's somebody's birthday here today. We're all going to sing them a happy birthday." And they started singing, and I realized it was me. That they were, you know, that, uh, and I was like, oh my God, like he, ah, it's so cool. You know, that he would think of that because he was that kind of guy. He would, you know, and Brian May standing on the side of the stage watching, you know, and, you know, Steven Tyler and everything backstage afterwards and Aerosmith coming up and watching Aerosmith from the side of the stage after that. And that was life. It was, uh, it was like getting a, you know, all of a sudden just a first class ticket into rock and roll, like you know everybody loved him so much man jimmy page would come out to the mm. uh you know the astoria or is that the place astoria ballroom is that the yeah yeah remember jimmy think... page coming to that gig is that the name of it there's the electric ballroom i think the astoria is gone now that was an, that was another venue but yeah i think that was the place where we pay where we played mm. and i came upstairs and you know page was standing there in the dressing room with with uh, ross half and it was like oh hello <laughs> yeah you know and then there's those moments man like yeah. nobody can take that away from you you know that's that's yours and, and i always say obviously you know how big how much of a beatles fan i am and um mm. the the one for me was i played this festival in in belgium with gutter damring the movie thing i'm sure i've told you about before and mm. um and we we played I think we must have been playing to about about 18,000 or something like that. It was a big gig for me. It was like, you know, um, we played like the second stage, but it's this huge indoor kind of arena tent mm. thing. And then Liam Gallagher was on after us. And then it was McCartney headlining that night on the stage. And I remember being in the VIP mm. area, having just done that gig, wearing this like long leather coat, like literally like floor length leather coat because it was quite a heavy metal thing just drinking red wine in this VIP area, watching McCartney play Blackbird and just being like, I think, I think this is it, man. <laughs> I think this is it. I think I've made it. And then, you know, obviously it all goes downhill from there, but, but, um, you get a yeah, taste though. They're and... just magic moments, aren't they? Yeah. And if you hang in there, they come again, you know, yeah, that's what yeah. I've found, you know, or maybe, you know, 
Maybe it all stops at some point. I don't know, but hopefully not. You know, it's like, <laughs> no. <laughs> hopefully we keep it going for a while longer, right? You're yeah, young, man. Absolutely, you got, man. Yeah, yeah, you got your. Like, like I said to you, I'm waiting for. Uh, I'm. Uh, I say this kind of half joking, like I'm just waiting for like a really famous singer to die, you know, just just to get that gig, you know. <laughs> you know, it's funny because it's like I. It, it, not, not even necessarily to die, but it's like I used to look when I was, it's the purity of like when I was like 14, I would look at the TV and go, well, someday that guy's going to be older and probably retire. And then I can do that. Yeah. Like yeah, we're playing guitar sure. in some band, you know, mm. and be like, I'll be there someday because that mm. if he could do it, I can do it. It's, and it was like that naive, direct kind of, you know what I mean? Mm. And that really is how I thought back then. I, yeah, I remember I couldn't really listen to music when I was a kid without imagining myself in the band. I would imagine totally. myself on stage playing like a fantasy, you know. I used and to that, do that at gigs all the time. I'd be at a gig and I'd be convinced that, you know, uh, uh, Steven Tyler is going to ask me up to sing a duet. You know, I'd be convinced. I was <laughs> yeah, like, this man. is the night. I'd be stood there like waiting for him to go, does anybody sing in the audience? You know, <laughs> if that's going to happen. I love it. <laughs> You know, it never, it never happened, unluckily. But um, you know, you know, you know, you, you see know, those videos of like the, the kid in in the arena in Greece, and suddenly he's playing keyboards with Coldplay, and you know, all that stuff, and he's amazing. And so, you know, so check or, this out. You know, Brit. So that's my girlfriend that plays drums. Yeah, right? yeah, and of course. She, you know, and she. So she has this great story that she was about fifteen, and she was she still is kind of like the world's biggest Green Day fan. And Green Day would do this thing where they would get people up on stage to play sometimes, like kids mm. or just random people in the audience. They'd just pull them out. And so, and they would do it on a certain song. And she was like, I'm going to be that person. And and she won tickets or something in a radio uh, thing to go to, uh, she didn't live in Vegas, but it was like she won tickets to go to the show in Vegas. And so they had to like travel there to get, I think, to the gig, her and her mom. You know, she was like, I got tickets to go green. We got to go to Vegas. And her mom was like, okay, because she, she was cool. And like, they, you know, flew there or whatever to go see the show. And she's like, I'm going to be on stage with them. And her mom's like, what? Like, yeah. Uh, like, what are you talking about? You know? And, uh, sh but she knew, you know, that, that they would sometimes get people up. So she made this big sign that said the name of the song and said the key of the song on it. It's in, you know, key of whatever, get, like, I want to play or whatever the sign said on it. Yeah. And a big sign that she colored, you know, got the, like, you know, <laughs> like mm. arts and crafts style, you know, and went there and held up this friggin' sign and they got her up on stage. And there's video Amazing. of it. You can watch this on, yeah, on, on YouTube too. So the song's, I think it's, oh, I can't remember the name of this. Jesus of Suburbia maybe is the song. Yeah. I think. Dun, uh, dun, dun, dun. Yeah, and so he get, he get, he gets her up because he sees and he's pointing at and she was like way up on the side and he saw the sign and she's like he's like get down here you better know how to play it you know <laughs> and her mom's like oh my god like it's actually happening the thing that my fourteen year old daughter or whatever said is going to happen is actually happening you know well there's man and, I'm not spiritual particularly but there's something to be said about putting things out into the universe isn't there you know she just made it happen you she yeah. manifested that shit you know yeah. and it's and it's unbelievable <laughs> so i like you just that is the biggest life lesson on how to get gigs and do you make it happen like that mm. you just turn it into what you you know and it doesn't always work but sometimes it does and then mm. it's like a that your whole life changes so and that's a life changer getting up and actually you know the strap was so low and she was short you know she was just a little kid when this happened that that she had to sit down and play it on the monitor because the strap was so long on the guitar. Wow. It was one of those leather ones you couldn't adjust easy. So she just sat down and played and he would come over and sing in her face. But she played the whole song like perfectly. 
you know, and then and then he made her stage dive at the end. She went and ran off the ego ramp, like the, off the end, and jumped into the crowd. <laughs> it's like amazing. Incredible. Yeah, like total rock star, you know. And then you go back up what to mom. See, I told you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what an experience, man! That's incredible. It's, I know she actually did that thing that was like your, you know, the fantasy we all have. So, um, but anyway, uh, where were we? You know. <laughs> <laughs> man, I don't. Yeah. I don't want to keep you uh, all afternoon because I know it's. Uh, what time is it in over where you are? Half past. It's three now or something? four thirteen, so it's getting late. Oh, four thirteen. Yeah. yeah, it's it's just gone midnight here, so uh, it's. Uh, I'm I'm actually drinking a Corona, believe it or not, because uh, they're dead cheap over here at the moment. So you, I didn't even clue it. That is a Corona. Yeah, wow, yeah. Amazing. They must be. Yeah, yeah what are yeah. they going for? Eighty cents. For- <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I feel pence. feel totally sorry for them actually. So yeah, yeah shout out to those guys. Uh, anyway, I just want to want to talk briefly about a couple more bits if that's cool with you. If you have got time, yeah. Um, yeah, let's do it. We've got a mutual friend called Holly Holly Henderson, and uh, yeah. And uh, I just wanted to bring her up because I know you've worked with her as, as a producer. And I just, I didn't actually ever think I knew how you two got involved with each other and stuff. Because I, I know her from, uh, you know, the scene over here. And she's a great uh, singer-songwriter and stuff. And I just wondered how you guys got involved. And It was the power of Instagram. So once hmm. again, just the, the putting things out there, you know, just through her playing things on Instagram and seeing her. And she was really young she was probably like 19 or something when i saw her on there and i was like oh this girl's got something like something really cool mm-hmm. um and then she started sending me uh links to her soundcloud and these little things that she was creating and uh, you know the, i wouldn't call them songs because they were like usually like nine minute crazy opuses of sound and she mm-hmm. didn't really know what she was doing so they were like uh technically like not not great sounding or engineered or anything and sometimes we really distorted and things but Every, you know, it'd be like every now and then, like I'd hear some, one of the things she does really well is layer vocal harmonies yeah, with interesting chords and interesting chord changes. So one chord leading into the next where I'd go, oh my God, that's like Brian Wilson level crazy shit. You know, mm. like I'd, I was just like, that is so beautiful. And I would hit her up and say, you know, that thing that happens at three minutes and 45 seconds in, that's amazing. Can you do that again? That's <laughs> Some your point song. In the, that's your, <laughs> so, so we started having these back and forth. And pr- within about a, a year or something, she was just r- sort of writing and completing these really beautiful little like full tunes, like proper mm. arrangements and things. And I was so knocked out by it all. And she had at least nine or 10 of them. And I was like, this is awesome. I was like, just come over here. And it was really a video on Instagram where she was singing a cover. It was a Bowie song. Bowie had just passed away. And, uh, and I heard her doing this tune and I was like, that's unbelievable. And I went online and actually bought her a plane ticket. Cause I knew she was just like in England, like didn't have a job was not just in know, England, in, in Maidstone. Maidstone, that's right. <laughs> Down in there in Kent. Yeah. And, uh, and I knew it was like, she, she, she's going to be overjoyed to come over here and work on some music. I know it. So, I, so we went in the studio with my friend, you know, she was like, what? You're crazy. And I was like, no, just, uh, I'd had a couple of drinks or something that night. And it was like, yeah. I was, you know, I went online to Virgin Atlantic and just bought her a plane ticket. Wow. Said, that's so lovely of you, man. And yeah, so she, she came over and uh, we did about three weeks in the studio, tracked all the basics. And then she came back one more time. We did some more stuff, but that, that was her first record. It's called Monday Green. You can check it out. It's on all the Spotify and all that. Um, mm. But uh, it's, it's really cool, but I mean, by the time the record was mixed and out, she was already like, she'd probably written another 50 tunes or something or more. Mm. Uh, and just, she's grown even so much since we did the record. So it's a great insight into what she's all about, but God, the things she's doing, 
I mean, she's one of those people that's just like ridiculously uh, creative and and prolific. So, Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, the recording she's making now and producing on her own and stuff are pretty amazing. She's come so far in four or five years. It's unbelievable. I'm sure she learned a lot from, from learn, you know, being with you in the studio and picking up tips and, you know, watching you do stuff. And we had a great, yeah. Great. And I learned from her because of her, uh, like I say, like there'd be these things where I'd hear and go, wow, that's like Brian Wilson level. She'd write some bridge or something to a song and I'd, or a, you know, vocal part and I'd be like, or a change. And I'd be like, it would make me almost uncomfortable. And I'd, I learned to just, you know, it's like my friend Dennis actually said to me, you know, the hardest thing about this is not going to, is going to be not to screw it up. Like just mm. to get out of the way sometimes. And I, I took that to heart and I was like, that is going to be the hardest thing. Cause she's so deep and hears things on kind of a crazy level. So I'd hear a change or a chord progression or something, and I wouldn't. I can you play me that? The, what what's going on with this bridge? Show me. And she'd play it, and I'd be like, "Okay, play it for me again." And I'd give it like four or five listens, and I go, "Oh God, I see mm. what you're doing now. Oh God, that's amazing. That's it." Mm. Or sometimes I'd be like, "It's too much." You've got the minor nine rubbing against the yeah the, yeah yeah. You know, it'd be like it's so dissonant. I just can't. I can't get with it. Can we just change this one thing? Because but yeah, mo- like eighty nine percent of the time, it was like just me coming around to it and and going like that is gorgeous. Like mm. you know, wow. But it's like not sometimes first listen kind of stuff. But I love that. Yeah. Remember for sure. remember records like that? When people used to make records you'd have to listen to and then they'd grow on you over a week and you'd go like Oh man, oh, honestly it's the, Christian in my band, Christian Mendoza, is a he's a killer guitar player and, and uh mm-hmm. he comes from kind of he's he's massively into his rock, but he he comes from like a kind of jazz fusion background and he does things like that all the time. You know, we'll be in we'll be writing a tune, you know, literally jamming a a, a song. And uh you know, I come from a a, you know, a rock background, you know, a, you know, right. I listen to Dylan and, and, you know, and the who, sure. and the, you know, so I'm like, how about we, how about we do like a D major there, you know? And he's like, oh, I was kind of thinking we could do like a, you know, F, F9 sharp, sharp and fifth or whatever, you know, and it always just, you go, oh yeah, that's just so cool and so beautiful. And, and it's, I'm the same, but you know, sometimes it just takes yeah. me a while to get my head around it. And then, uh, and then I, then I have no idea what to write over the top of it, you know, and, and he'll go, yeah. How, have you thought about doing this, you know, and then suddenly we have this, this beautiful, but weird rock song, you know? Yeah. And, um, so that's it's, cool. That's yeah, cool. Yeah. You have that. And, and then again, maybe sometimes the D is the right thing to do. Right? Mate, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's, and that's there's part of being in a band, right? Yeah. Like, totally. <laughs> <laughs> how and about, you both learn. You know? Yeah. How about we just do a, you know, that a five there, you know, that'd be dope. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and you know what I find is that if everybody's open to those ideas, uh, like listening, well, let's try both ways. And you listen, you really live with it for a minute. The beautiful one, the best one usually rises to the surface. Yeah. And everybody kind of generally agrees. If you mm. take your ego out of it and you listen and you're like, if, if you're just in it, both in it for the right reasons, you know, or, or the whole mm. band's in it and you try all the different things and everybody gets their shake and then you, you know, I think this one's best. Everybody usually goes, yeah, that's the way to go. That's what I yeah. find. I love that. Where, But you learn something in the process and you gain the trust of the other band member by entertaining their idea even if you know and then by giving maybe giving them the oh yeah your idea is better you know and then next time they'll do that for you because this is trust it's a beautiful thing if you can get that going in a band you know totally and and uh what was what was the process of of your record i want to give it a plug because I, I was listening to it today while i was prepping for this and and uh 
Pete Thorne 2, you released it in 2018. It's such a cool record, man. It's an instrumental, you know, oh, it's a thanks. guitar record. I love the tune Rosemary on there, man. It's very Jimmy Page-esque. And oh, thanks. It's, uh, it's, yeah, super beautiful. And But I just wanted to ask, like, how that came about. Was it was it just you? And, and who did you work with? Was there a drummer? Or, like, how did, how did you put that record together? Um, the second record, you know, it started much like the first where I would just record things when I had time. And yeah. sometimes I'd just be like, I hit a friend up and go, Hey, do you got time on, you know, to cut some drums today or like tomorrow or something? Cause I got, you know, mm. all, everybody's got their own studio now. So, and I'd go over to a friend's house and, you know, so Kurt Biscara played drums, great drummer. Um, mm. and, uh, Matt Log played and, uh, my other friend Blair Sinta, a lot of great musicians. John Button played some bass. So it's just hitting up friends, you know. Hey, do you mind adding a little thing to this or that? You know, yeah, that kind yeah. of thing. And uh, Eric Aldanius played drums too from Billy Idol's band. He played on a few tunes. And Steve Stevens actually uh, played bass on two or three songs. Um, and he's a great bass player and always fun to. Yeah, he also yeah. did the keys on couple of the, of the tunes on there, mm. uh, some programming, and it sounds distinctly Steve Stevens and like his, yeah. you know, he brought that, some of that flavor, which I love. Um, but really, it's pretty haphazard. Now, so I'd probably worked for it for like two years or something. And then my friend Dennis, same Dennis I said, you know, I mentioned about uh, Holly and saying, you know, the hardest thing's going to be not to screw this up. Yeah. He's, he's a producer and kind of manager and does a bunch of different stuff in the, you know, and musician uh, in, in Brooklyn. Uh he got involved and he's like, well, why don't we do a, like set a date and we'll do kind of, it was when Pledge Music was still operating. They went yeah. a big, big scandal, like right after this all went down, but we actually I did remember, a Pledge. Yeah. yeah. And we did a Pledge Music release uh, with it. And luckily we, we got out with, you know, they, they fulfilled their end of it and it was okay. Mm. But right after that, man, a lot of people didn't fare well with them. But anyway, so I was really lucky. Um, but anyway, the whole deal with Pledge was it was kind of a pre-sale thing where, you know, you'd, you'd set a date for the release of the album and then you, you'd, you know, had packages for T-shirts and, you know, I had guitar pickups and different things, all a part of the packages of the sale sure. uh, of, you know, and, and, and obviously physical copies, CDs signed and stuff like that. So all of a sudden I had a date then, a release date, and it was about five months off into the future. So now I've got two or three months to really finish it. Put it together, and, yeah. Yeah, and in that two or three months, I had to finish. Like, I only had like five tunes, <laughs> and then it was like, okay, I've taken two and a half years to record half this album. Now, in the next two months, I need to finish the other half, which was yeah. good. I needed- deadlines are good, man. Deadlines are good. Sometimes it's it's good, quite right? it's quite a diverse yeah. record, isn't it? There's quite a lot of different. Um, yeah, kind of, you can hear all the influences and the different styles in there and stuff. It's it's, it's cool. It's man. definitely me, but it's like, and a lot of the so a lot of the tunes on that record started out as the demos that I do for pedal companies or things on YouTube, mm. and I I view those as demos. I'll go back and mine them for ideas musically and go, oh, that was a cool one. I just lengthen that into a full song and even mm. keep actually some of the tracks, like some sure. of the some of the things I'd already cut and yeah, then just yeah, length, yeah. lengthen it out and edit it into a full song. So that's how a lot of those tunes came about. Rosemary was actually uh, it's like an, the only acoustic song. That was actually Dennis's suggestion, too. He said, why don't you put an acoustic song and kind of break the record up a little bit? Mm. I thought, well, I got this thing, and I wrote it when I was like 20, uh, mm. and I'd never done anything with it. Used to have, there was actually, a, I worked with a singer for a while, and it had lyrics. It was like a, you know, had a vocal part, and I just mm. kind of turned it into a... a instrumental acoustic song with a melody. I had to write a little melody that made sense and stuff on guitar. Mm. But my favorite song on the record is the last one called Remember, mm. um, which I sort of builds up from nothing and goes into a full, you know, 
know, I wanted it to be a full, like, kind of Pink Floyd epic thing at the end. But at the yeah. beginning, it starts with a single clean guitar and some atmospheric stuff going on. But yeah, so that's my that favorite tune. Both my but, solo albums, the last songs, is my favorite. <laughs> I put track track ten. <laughs> yeah, so, pe- so people have to uh, they have to invest to get to your favorite, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why. I just like you gotta you gotta go out on a you know we, we grew up in a time yeah on a on a big note you know it's like yeah you know, yeah. Not, yeah you gotta go out and want leave people wanting more. Yeah, man. <laughs> obviously I'm I'm a singer, man. So the only thing that those records are missing is a sexy English front man, but. <laughs> ah, hey, we'll we'll do that one of these days. We'll do something together. Oh man, we should. It would be a pleasure. Man, um, one more thing before I let you go. Um, I've asked every guest uh, that's been on the pod so far um, to do this section, which I'm calling "One Night Only," which is essentially, uh, I, I guess I know which you're gonna you're gonna pick, but I'm letting people either pick a super group that they could be in for one night only or a five-a-side football team. I don't know if you're into football much, are you? No. No. No, nothing about your whole world of... <laughs> Do you know, know, it's, it's so surprising that the, the musicians that have picked, have, have opted for the football team. <laughs> well, you're, you're a Manchester uh, guy, and I know... Uh, Manchester Liverpool United, was, Yeah, Liverpool was the rest of the, the, the folks in the band, pretty much. Yeah. So it was uh, that constant rivalry on the road, right? Yeah. Oh, man, I it's learned. great to have it. It's great to have banter, man. That, that's half of football. It's, it's that tribalism, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> totally but yeah so if, if you could if you could be in any but ba- well if you could pick your own band members for one night only who would it be alive or oh dead my. oh my god alive or dead on the really? sp- i know this is putting you on the spot but that's uh, uh that's the point that's the point jeez dude i kind of want to be a wow i've got like my my brain is fighting itself right now like the, there's a side of me that wants to be like uh, in the traveling wilburys and there's yeah. the side of me that wants to be in a metal band of some sort <laughs> yeah. i'm like god maybe bill ward from black sabbath and and uh you know and who else you know what i mean there's that yeah side of it. yeah god, i don't know dude that's a hard one um i loved when mccartney did this gig which was filmed at the cavern uh in liverpool he got together with dave gilmore and ian pace on drums yeah wow the other fellow in the band was from the pretenders and i always was like why don't why don't uh they just make record like why isn't that a band like david gilmore with paul mccartney and ian pace on drums? like why don't they do more of that stuff anymore like they used to be super groups you know yeah so can i just be in that band i'm gonna pick them I'm going to kick out the fellow. I can't remember who the other fellow was that did that. It was, they, they got together and they played songs by like, it was kind of like a celebration of their, you know, Eddie Cochran and. Uh, and the rock and roll stuff. Know, yeah. Yeah. The early, the stuff they grew up on, mm. you know, and they did a show at the, and, the, and I remember seeing it and they filmed it. And so I want to be in that band. I want to be, I'm going to replace the fellow from the pretenders. <laughs> cool, man. <laughs> we have Paul and vocals and Dave Gilmore <laughs> on guitar and I'll just play second guitar or bass or whatever. I'll be the Ian Pace on drums. Cause he's an underrated badass. He was like, yeah. That. Yeah. He's like, well, he's kind of like the Brian May of like, like he doesn't get the same due, but yet, come on, give me a break. He's like, Brian May's right up there with Jimmy Page and he should be at this, you know what I mean? Like Gilmore yeah, and- absolutely. Yeah, he was that on drums, I think. Like Ian, unbelievable drummer. Anyways. Oh, awesome, man. Well, yeah. thank you so much. Uh, it's been such a, so wicked to catch up with you, my friend. And uh, you, you stay safe and, uh, and hopefully Thanks, I'll see, see, you, see you on the other side of all this chaos. 
If everybody hasn't caught it, watch our uh, our our War Pigs video, right? Black Sabbath War Pigs. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's just, just been that. released. Yeah, you it's killed super it. cool, man. Oh, and so wasn't it's on the Classic Rock Show uh, YouTube channel, and uh, I, I loved it. I thought it turned out really good. And Wayne, oh my god, yeah, man, what a bass player, man. He's actually going to be on the podcast as well. So that's, that's another it's another great conversation. Yeah, I've, I've already re- already recorded that one, so we got that to look forward to. <laughs> man, he really. Somebody mentioned it in the comments. They said he really captures the spirit, and he sure did. Like he really nails the. I don't know. It's like in his blood that you know. I mean. F- for all of us, it's like we love those tunes, you know, but something about the way he played that song. I, you know, you're on stage, you don't hear it as clear. And then when I heard yeah. the mix, I was just like, damn, he's killing that song on bass right now. Like just ruling, you know? Well, that, that's the other thing so, about, you know, being in a band like we are, you know, you, you know, being around, you know, the talent that we get to work with, you, it, it becomes normal, doesn't it? Everything normalizes. And, and then mm. sometimes I'd, you know, I'd be like, you know, on the side stage, just toweling myself down, just having a quick sip of water, or whatever. And you'd be mid eruption. And I just go, fuck, that's Pete Thorne playing eruption, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's, uh, you know, you have to keep reminding yourself, you know, it's, uh, it's super cool there. Yeah. To be able to hang out and work with you guys, man. So once again, thank Likewise, you so dude. much, man. Likewise, dude. So much fun. So we'll do it again once this weird time is all over with. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) All right, man. Bye-bye. So there we have it. Episode one of Staying Alive with me, Jesse Smith. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. What an amazing guy Pete Thorne is. It was so cool to catch up with him. Next week's guest is none other than 80s pop sensation, Carol Decker of Tapau. So make sure you tune in for that one. Now I've got a favor to ask of you. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit subscribe as we've got some amazing guests coming up over the next couple of weeks. But most importantly, please tell all your friends to check it out and have a listen. You can also go to iTunes and give us a five-star review. And if you'd like to go a step further, you can also donate to help me keep making these podcasts via jessiesmithuk.com. The link is in the bio. And if you or your business are interested in sponsoring the show by advertising, please get in touch via my website. Special thanks, of course, to today's guest, Pete Thorne, and to Acast for providing me with an awesome podcasting platform. This was a Jesse Smith production with music by Neil X, Mark Garfield, and me. And for now, I'd just like to say thank you so much for listening. Stay safe, stay alive. See you very soon.